Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me. This is Greg Soden. A while back, a friend told me about a new book coming out that is a memoir of growing up while feeling a distinct disillusion with school and society, which leads to finding a community in the punk scene, which then leads to a life of activism and teaching. I resonated with this description and checked out the book, The Hands That Crafted the Bomb, The Making of a Lifelong Anti-Fascist by Josh Fernandez. Josh Fernandez is an anti-racist organizer, father, runner, fighter, English professor, and writer whose stories have appeared in Spin, The Sacramento Bee, The Hard Times, and several other alternative news weeklies. He is the author of The Hand That Crafted the Bomb, and it is out now from PM Press. The book is a memoir of Josh's angry youth and activist work in anti-fascism, self-defense, and education. After starting a branch of the campus anti-fascist network at the community college where he is a professor, Josh found himself under investigation for, quote, soliciting students for potentially dangerous activities. The book tracks Fernandez's year of defending his job while reflecting on a life lived in protest of the status quo from his childhood in Boston to his adulthood in California and life as a professor and activist. The book is very raw, gripping, and honest, and it dissects and processes a significant amount of anger about the state of the world. I really loved the book, and if any of that resonates with you, I really think you'll enjoy this conversation and the book itself. You can find The Hand That Crafted the Bomb, The Making of a Lifelong Anti-Fascist, at pmpress.org. Thank you so much for listening. Josh Fernandez, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It's it's great to be here. Well, Josh, I am delighted to have you here, and I'm super excited to chat with you about your brand new book, The Hands That Crafted the Bomb, The Making of a Lifelong Anti-Fascist from PM Press. But I'm wondering if you can just start off by introducing yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a writing teacher uh, at a community college, um, and I'm an anti-racist organizer. I've been an anti-racist organizer since I was 15 or so, and I'm now a 48 year old man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a while. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have a family, and so I just try and balance all those things. And uh, and it's uh, it's not easy, but it's it's very fun. How long have you been teaching now? Uh, so I think I'm on year maybe 11 or 12 teaching. Yeah. Nice. Cool. That's uh, I know that you were had a different career as well before that. Like kind of how did you like what was your pathway like uh, to kind of where you are now professionally? Yeah. So so uh, it took me a while to get into college or anything like that. I was kind of a, a wayward youth, but uh once I got into college, I knew that all I could do is write. That's the only skill I had. And so that's kind of the direction I took. And I really had this goal to to uh, to be a writer and, and to teach writing. Um, and so I went in with that mindset, like, I want to get out of here with a job where I where I get to do what I love. And so um, when I got out of college, I started writing for publications. I wrote for a motorcycle magazine, which was weird. Mm-hmm. I never even t- I lied in my interview and I was and he was like, What kind of motorcycle do you have? And I'm like, it's a Harley Davidson. Yeah. 
I'd never even touched a motorcycle. I'm scared of motorcycles. Uh, but I got the job and I was an editor at this motorcycle magazine. And like, I just loved writing. I loved writing so much. And I was like, well, journalism's cool because you get to write stories every day, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I started writing for like uh, alternative news weeklies and that sort of thing. And just writing about music and arts and culture, which was really cool. And I did that for a long time. And then when journalism started nosediving, I kind of freaked out and everyone in the industry kind of started freaking out like, oh my God, there's no more advertising money and the internet is free and no one's reading newspapers anymore. So I kind of scrambled for something to do. So I went back to school and I um, I got a master's degree in writing and then I, I started applying for teaching positions at community colleges and stuff, so. Awesome. Well. I, whenever I got your book, I was reading a little bit about your bio and I came across the fact that I've actually been reading you for a long time through the hard times, Yes, a yeah. satirical punk rock oriented, uh, you know, kind of onion esque publication that focuses on punk music. Cause I've been yeah. listening to punk for 30 years myself. And so I realized I've been reading your work for a long time without even realizing it. And then this book comes along. So it's actually kind of cool to, to make that connection too. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny when, uh, when Matt, the, the founder of the hard times came up with the idea for the hard times, he kind of, he was like, are there any writers who are interested in the back of my mind? I'm like, dude, there's already the onion. This thing is going to go nowhere, but I'm mm -hmm. like, sure, I'll do it. You know what I mean? And, and like, he's a visionary kind of dude. And like, he knows what he's doing and he's, he has a very business oriented mind. So like, I should never doubt that guy. Um, and he knew what was happening and like it took off. So I was like, oh man, this is so cool to be like one of the first writers at the hard times. Um, and it's funny, I still I still pitch ideas, but there are so many funny writers there now mm -hmm. that it's like, it's crazy. Like in the beginning, it was just a bunch of us, you know, and now he's just like got all this, these super talented young punks who are hungry to to get headlines in there. So it's really cool. Man, I love that. Well, let's chat about the book. You've got this brand new book. I think it actually comes out. We're recording this on February 9th, 2024. I think it comes out in like three or four days officially, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That is fantastic. Well, I am so pleased to be kind of an advanced reader for this to kind of spread the word about this book. And the second this book landed in my mailbox and I opened it up and I saw a picture of you on the front and uh, I saw a, a blurb by Kevin Seconds, one of the most legendary hardcore front people of all time. I was just like, this is just a book that just is, it belongs in my home. It's supposed yes. to be here. <laughs> and so I was just so pumped, man. Um, and so, you know, whenever I started digging into this memoir, uh, something that really stands out to me is your stories of your youth right? Yeah. And you've got a few different storylines woven throughout this book. You kind of like ping pong back and forth between past and present throughout the book. And I love the way that it's structured, but you mentioned earlier being a wayward youth. And I want to dive into that for a few minutes. If that's sure, cool yeah. You talk about your childhood in Massachusetts, you talk about your childhood in California, and there's this pervasive sense of like anger and frustration throughout it. And I'm just wondering if you can talk to me about a little bit about your approach of writing your youth years and maybe what that did for you as as a grown up looking back on those times. 
Yeah, I, I think some of the frustration stemmed from just being a super curious person. And like, I wanted to know the answers. Do you know what I mean? And so like when there's family problems, when my family was having problems, my parents were very like, they had a wall up. They didn't want us to know anything. And I was like, I want to know everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is this mm -hmm. fight about? Why are you fighting? Why, why is dad gone? Do you know what I mean? And like, mm -hmm. I was getting none of those answers. So my angst was building and building. And um, so that was part of it. Like this rage was building inside of me. And the thing that writing has done for me is like, it allows me to answer those questions. Right. And so like really this book, the writing of this book was me trying to answer all those questions I've had for my whole life. Like, why, why am I like this? <laughs> why mm. am I this way? Do you know what I mean? And so like, it's really, I hate to say therapeutic, but in a way it is, it's like, it really allows me to critically think my way out of all this rage that I feel. Mm. What was like the research process like for you to like tap into some of those memories? Did you have to like verify your memories with anybody else who was there? Like, how do you tap into that as a writer of going back decades in your memory and trying to get it right on paper in a book now? Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's some of that, but also there, there's this part. I don't think I don't think you've gotten there yet, but there's a part later in the book where um, I have this really distinct memory of me and my stepdad on a bicycle going down this hill really fast. And this was in Massachusetts. And like, it was exhilarating and scary. And then I remember both of us seeing this wall right in front of us. And like, if we didn't stop, we we're gonna fall off the wall to our deaths. Mm. I just remember his feet digging into the grass and like really stopping. And we stopped like almost like a movie just at the edge of the wall. And so I brought it up to my dad. I'm like, you remember that story? And he's like, that never happened. That mm. never happened. And so like, we just stood there and I'm like, are you serious? And so like, there, there's that part of it where like, I don't know if he's wrong. I don't know if I'm wrong, but it's like a, like a, a really clear memory in my head. And so, yeah, there's a lot of going back and forth, trying to like figure out what's real and what's not. And it's hard. And, and and so, like, I think, you know, the story is like me and my sisters see things differently and we, we interpret things differently. So there's a lot of that, too. Yeah. You know, I'm curious about your sisters as well. You write very movingly about your your siblings and your sisters uh, throughout the book. Whenever you're having like experiencing like, you know, teen like anger and anger uh, frustration with like your teachers and parents it seems like your sisters are like a real rock to yeah. you throughout those early years tell me a little bit about like the importance of them and kind of like maybe getting you through some of these angry years and kind of grounding you and keeping you like tethered to reality almost it seems like in parts of the book yeah i th and i think it's like um it's sort i've sort of learned from them a way to raise my own children Mm -hmm. which is like this very non-judgmental sort of like uh, listening a lot, just sort of understanding a lot and not necessarily like seeing eye to eye on everything, but really just just listening and, and being there. And so that's what my, my sisters were for me. My parents weren't that, but my sisters were really like there for me as a non-judgmental entity in my life. So... Yeah. You know, 
something else that's really fascinating. So I'm a teacher. I've been a high school teacher for for years and years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And your writing about your youth involving your teachers and schools in general was so fascinating because one of the questions I've always wondered with myself as a teacher, because like I grew up like in like boring, dull, all white suburbia, uh-huh. you know, on the outskirts of St. Louis. And my friends and I were bored out of our minds. We found punk rock and like skateboarding and partying and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, my A lot of my experiences really like are aligned with what you write about with your friends in the book. Um, except for I was like a total nerd and I was yeah. kind of like on the outskirts of like the groups uh, of like some of the stories that you talked about. Like I would have been like looking in on that being like wa- wishing people like that were thinking I was cool. Yeah. You know? So my, uh, my, my memories of my own youth of like wanting to be cool and wondering what that was like, it, to me, it's like, you were like maybe one of those guys that like I wished would have liked me whenever I was like that age, but didn't sure. quite make that connection. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about like some of your your friendships and uh, kind of what that was like going on for you as well, too, because it's really fascinating to watch. Like you were living the life that I was looking at, like trying to bust into. But like, you know, I'm just wondering your impression of that, because that's what was so fascinating to me about those uh, those friendship stories. It's so funny because I I was looking at other people the way you may have looked at me. Like I was looking at the like these almost like Gigi Allen type of people. And I was like, <laughs> damn, they don't care about anything. And like yeah. they're just complete outlaws. Like, what do they even have parents? <laughs> like, how do they what do they go home to at night? So I was looking at people like that, but at the same time, like the the people I was hanging out with were like probably like you, like they were really good in school and they were like all on track to go to college. And like, um, I still hang out with them today and they're all like, one of my friends went on to be a writer for the tonight show. Mm. One of them is an ophthalmologist, like a surgeon an eye surgeon. Another one is a surgeon, another surgeon, another one writes for the New York times. Like they're just very successful, creative people. And like, a lot of that success and creativity came from punk rock and came from skateboarding. Yeah. Just, you know, like there's the, I think there's this perfect balance of like academics plus like this weird subculture creative type of thing and skateboarding, which was really individual and really like uh, self-starting. Right. Like I just remember like trying a trick for hours you know what I mean? And like, mm-hmm. you're bruised up and you're almost dead, but you're like, I'm getting this trick. Yeah. Like that is such a translatable skill to, to life later on that we just don't know yet, but it really comes in handy, that grit and determination. And so like a lot of my friends, they had all that, they had all that plus the academics mm. and I have the, I didn't understand the academics. I was like, the, I don't understand these teachers. I don't know what they're telling me to do. I don't want to do what they're telling me to do. So like I was really oppositional uh, and my friends weren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's really interesting is like growing up in like the being, going to punk shows and stuff like that. I got through school relatively unscathed as far as like relationships with my teachers were concerned. You didn't. Right. So you and I would have been at the same show but we would be having these different experiences where I'd be like sliding through under the radar at school, but you wouldn't be, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. 
and we both became teachers, which I yeah. find super fascinating. And how do you like, how do you square that being like such an oppositional uh, student and then winding up becoming the person that you may have been oppositional with? Like, how does that, you know, uh, how does that like fit within your psyche? Yeah, it's, it's weird. And I never really thought about it. I, and I, when I was going to school, I'm like, I have never had a good teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, and then, um, you know, I just stopped thinking about it and I washed dishes and did all these horrible jobs. And then, um, I started writing and then I started learning about writing and I went to school focused on writing. And then I started having all these amazing professors and I was like, Oh my God, these people like care about me <laughs> They're I can see them trying to help my life. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah. oh, I can be like that. Like, it's not a teacher like a cop. And I would put teachers and cops on the same sort of platform, right? Mm-hmm. And because they were always getting me in trouble and I was always getting in trouble and they were always disciplining me. And like, when I started going to community college, my professors were like, we don't care about any of that shit. We just want you yeah. to like fulfill your dream. And I'm like, what? You're trying to help me fulfill my dream of being like a degenerate writer. Okay. (laughs) And so like anything that I needed, they would try to give me. And so I was like, oh, I get it. I want to be like that. Amazing. Yeah. That's the kind of teacher I want to be. Nice, man. Well, we'll get back into teaching in a little bit. Um, But let's go back to music for a second, because like, to me, it's super important, right? Music and learning from like the lyrics and the messages of being involved in punk and ska and hardcore. Um, I, you know, trace so much of my own like ideological view of the world back explicitly to like some of those some of those things, like you know, propaganda and bad religion, yeah. uh, hardcore, like no effects and stuff like that. Super important to me. Um, I'm wondering if you have any ways that you specifically tie music into where you would go on to do work with like anti-fascism activism and things like that. Can you like tie music into uh, some of the work that you've gone on to do? Yeah, I think at the, at the time when I was little, I didn't care about politics. I didn't know anything about politics. I would hear Jello Biafra singing about politics and it would kind of go over my head. I'd just be mm-hmm. like, this is great music. I love it. Yeah. But like, I don't know, he t- he's talking about Tipper Gore. I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, and like, kill the poor. Do you know what I kill mean? Them, but yeah. If we're going to sing like, kill, 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 kill the poor, it's like, is that like a literal instruction? Does he actually hate the poor? You know what I mean? Like, that's, I, I totally get it. Totally. And so like, Holiday in Cambodia, I wore a Dead Kennedys shirt with like, uh, John F. Kennedy, like shot. And I was just like, this is punk. Like, I didn't know. But then like, as the bonehead started like becoming a problem, it became political and I didn't know it was political. Like I I just wanted to get the boneheads out and go to these shows and be safe and have fun with my friends. And so like, even when we started forming the anti-racist action group, it still almost wasn't political. It was just get these boneheads out. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and so like, um, It wasn't until later when I would reflect back on like the messages that Operation Ivy were singing about. You know what I mean? It wasn't until later that I understood what Dead Kennedys were singing about. 
um, and all that stuff. And so like, it really kind of tied together later. Um, and it was really in the beginning, just survival. Mm. You know, what I, mean? I just wanted to go to these shows and have fun with my friends and slam into each other. Yeah. You know, I've heard stories about uh, like Nazi and skinhead infiltration and punk scenes like, you know, across the world. You know, yeah. uh, I'm a huge fan of the band Propaganda and a lot of their earliest stuff was like about getting local skinheads out of their teeny tiny punk scene in Winnipeg. Yeah. And you know, I'm hearing stories coming out about that kind of stuff in your book as well. And I'm wondering, like, how important like the. Uh, fighting against like that kind of stuff and like a punk scene is to your you know what you go on to do later like is that like a major uh, sort of initiation to be like oh this is super important my friends and I we want to have this one space but we need to actually fight for it does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely and that was that's 100% what it was and like um, once once we ended up getting the boneheads out of our scene um for us, it was a victory because we were like, oh, we can go to these shows and have fun. Um, and and it, it was almost like we felt like we won something, right? Mm. We're like, oh, we're safe. Um, it wasn't until later on, obviously, when um, when it started being connected to politics and and especially when Donald Trump came into office and like everything kind of exploded once again and like all these boneheads started resurfacing and and it was really strange to see to see that kind of thing and so a lot of the tactics we used back then were coming back into play and so like it wasn't anti-racist action anymore it was anti-fascist action mm. um, but like people started drawing from the past um and started creating like different crews and 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 sort of organizing against racism in the same sort of way so nice it was you as you uh as you move out of like like when you're growing from those early punk scene years, right? Do you start like finding any scholars or writers that kind of helped you take your thinking about it to like the next level? Does anything stand out to you as far as like um stuff like that that inspired you kind of like beyond uh the music as well? It yeah, it wasn't until way later though. So like I was re when I first started reading um I think I read Karl Marx when I was like 13 or something and I, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's happening, but it sounds cool. But uh, I was reading like Celine, who's like journey into the end of the night. And uh, that was like my favorite writer. And then I, I started looking into Celine and I'm like, Oh, he's a fascist. Mm. And I was like, shit. And I was reading like Ezra pound poems and I'm like, Oh my God, this dude's a rabid anti-Semite. Hmm. And so I was like, this is not like, I don't, I didn't know how to sort of figure that stuff out. And so I started reading like Malcolm X and Asata Shakur and like Black Panther stuff. And I sort of started to think like, oh, there's a, there's a way to sort of um, talk about liberation and struggle and still do good writing. Um and so that was sort of a, a struggle in my life when I was coming back into anti-fascism after a life of like drug use and things like that was sort of reconciling these these things and 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 learning how to write in a way that like promoted the principles that I grew up with. Nice. OK, so tell me about like so you were in journalism for a long time and then you get into teaching. 
Tell me about like getting your feet under you as a professor after like a lifetime of like anti-fascist activism, working in journalism, going to punk shows, and then all of a sudden kind of like moving into this like institution that uh, you had previously had a lot of conflict with. Like, tell me about becoming a professor and kind of getting your your comfort zone as far as like getting involved in that institutional level. Yeah, sure. Um, I, so I it was... I ended up getting a job pretty quickly because I had a lot of bylines and people kind of knew who I was and they were just like, oh yeah, you can, you can write. And so you can probably teach people to write, but I had no training, you know what I mean? Which was weird. I like, they just gave me a class. It was like an emergency hire the next week I was teaching <laughs> and I was, it was crazy because I remember I was so nervous because I'm not like a public speaker or anything. So I remember I wrote out a script for every word I was going to say, hmm. and I'd have comebacks. Like if they say this, I'll say this. And it was like this long <laughs> script. And I was like, I didn't end up needing it, but it like made me feel better. I was less nervous, but, um, coming into the institution, I was kind of like naive and, and, and bright eyed and bushy tailed because I was like, Oh, this is like a progressive institution and they're down with the shit I'm talking about. Um, I was definitely wrong about that in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. And, and it was sort of an eye opener for me. Um, but the thing about teaching in a college is you're fairly autonomous, like in a lot of ways, like, you know, they leave the curriculum up to you. They kind of, you're not, you can get with any books, what you want, you can teach the way you want, you can say the things you want. Um, so really it was it was me in a classroom with a bunch of students who like when the, when their professor comes into the class covered in tattoos they're like oh this is a different kind of dude and they'll mm -hmm. give you the benefit of the doubt you know what i mean so i i kind of use that goodwill to like build build a relationship with them and so like the with me and the students it was always great it wasn't until the administration started getting wind of like uh, my politics is is when things got a little sketchy. Yeah, you know, and for listeners out there who may be listening to this, who have no idea who you are, um, you know, I'm looking at you in the video right now, and it's right here on the cover of your book as well. Like you have tattoos on the top of your head, you have tattoos covering like the the front of your throat, up in your fingers. Like there's a you know, whenever a person like that, whenever a person who who looks like outside like the ordinary of like a me walking into a classroom. Um, versus you, there's definitely a sense of difference there, isn't there? As far as like a student is concerned, definitely, yeah, yeah, and and it's and it's really um, it works to my advantage in a lot of ways. Um, for younger people, it seems to disarm them a little bit, and they're like, oh, thank God, we can relax. You know what I mean? It's not some stuffed up old guy, but um, yeah, and especially because I was teaching a prison as well. Mm. Uh, when I, when I walk into the prison, the students are like, oh, one of us. Okay, we, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you're alluding to some, some conflict, right, uh, with administration um, in the college. And this is super important and is a central woven thread throughout the book, The Hands That Crafted the Bomb. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. I want to go into this. You start an anti-fascist club at mm -hmm. your college. I want to know a little bit about the formation of the club and what the, you know, activities are like at the club before we get into the actual like investigation and conflict with the administration. Tell me about 
uh, the formation and just kind of what the club is about at the at the level with the students? Yeah, so so the club formed um, a couple of professors, I think from Stanford and and maybe Yale. I'm, I can't remember now. They started the club for for universities. It was called the Campus Anti Fascist Network, mm -hmm. um, and it's just a network across colleges where campuses can adopt this club. Um, and it's mostly, you know, sort of talking about politics, talking about fascism, talking about movements, social movements and things like that. Um, and so when I helped the students start this club, it was really cool because it was the most popular club on the campus. There were, you know, when we came, there was 50 students just sitting around like talking in, about fascism and and we we're creating zines and banners. It was really cool. Um and that's pretty much what it was, just like discussion. And one one it was right when Trump came into office. So there was a lot of like banner making and sign making and zine making. Um, it was really active and fun and and it had a lot of energy and movement in it. And the students were really excited about it. Um but I guess the administration wasn't as <laughs> thrilled. So, you know, during that time period as well, like you're seeing events happening across the country as well. Like I'm thinking about the marches in like Charlottesville, Virginia, yeah. uh, where somebody actually got run over and died. Yes. Um, and so I'm wondering if there was any like on the ground stuff that your club was doing during that time period that like, what were the students doing? Like as far as like community involvement as well, because it was a, such a, a highly pressurized time period that we may very well be careening back into uh, in 2025 to 2030. Yep. Um, so I'm wondering like what your students were like, how are they engaging in the community that you like look back on as being kind of like an important time period for them? Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of uh, uh, brown and queer students who were already pretty active in, in those issues. And, and so they were excited to sort of have a hub. Um, and we would go to protests together. Um, there were a lot of protests here in Sacramento, especially. Um, I remember the Westboro Baptist Church came, mm. uh, like the hate church, who, who's just completely against anything that's not their church. Um, they came to protest a trans teacher. And so we went out to that protest and we just protested, you know, uh, just waved signs and, you know, regular protest stuff. So um, that's kind of how we got active in that club, especially. Got it. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the conflict with uh, administration. So as a teacher, me and you, we both are teachers. I've never really been an administrator, and it doesn't sound like you have been either based on the book. And you write very movingly about this sort of conflict that is embedded between administration and classroom teachers um, where you feel it, right? Like as you, as a teacher, you have this sense of like what administrators are safe to talk to and which ones aren't, um, who is very performative in the ways that they talk about social issues in like public. But then whenever it comes to backroom sort of things, like who is like actually meaning what they're saying and whose actions back up um, what they're talking about and whose don't. 
There's this real interesting conflict between teachers and administrators that I've always thought about my entire career, and it seems like you have as well. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about your views on the conflict and separation of power between administration and teachers and how you kind of navigate that. Yeah, it's it's weird. When I was in journalism, it was the separation between advertising and then the journalists. Yeah. So like I I was kind of aware of it, but again, I was so naive when I went into that job. Like the people who hired me seemed like they were for all the right things. You know what I mean? And we'd have these meetings where they're talking about like anti-racism and and like, you know, like helping students of color and like all this stuff. And so like you go to these meetings as a new professor and you're like, this is where I need to be. Yeah. This is my place. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And then and then you and then you start working there and you see like, oh, these are all buzzwords. Mm-hmm. They're like these are all like um, state mandated initiatives that they're trying to to employ in our district so that they can get the funding involved with these mandates. And so it's really like a funding formula to them Mm. and nothing else. And so like when we're out here doing the work on the ground and then in our classrooms and we're really trying to make a change in the world, they couldn't care less about that. Like they, they care about the funding formula. And so like, I didn't understand that at first. Um, but it became very clear as they started to clamp down on our anti-fascist club, like, oh, I get, I get what they're saying. I get it. Yeah. You know, it's really fascinating too, because like me as a white male heterosexual teacher from the suburbs, uh, Mm -hmm. in the Midwest of the United States, I think all the time about how I have been, uh, basically full of it, right? I can say all those buzzword things. I can do all that. So whenever you're pointing out certain hypocrisies in the book, these are things that I feel deeply within my own identity because how many times have I been like massively hypocritical and saying certain things and then behaving in other ways in the classroom? Like this is difficult, a difficult book for me because it talks about some of my own hypocrisies and massive shortcomings as an educator about when my actions and my values don't align. Right. Who am I, who am I penalizing as a student? Who am I not penalizing? Right. These are conflicts that I've faced for my entire life. So I'm super grateful to you for books like this because it talks so much about some of those discrepancies within my own teaching. And that matters a lot, man. Sure. Yeah. I, and, and, and it's all of us though. We're all contradictory. We're all hypocritical. We say things and then do the opposite. So like for me, it was hard to write the book because I'm like, wow. I'm like, I was doing an interview the other day and the, and the interviewer sort of was like, there's a lot of contradictions in your book. I'm like, exactly. That's what it is. I'm not going to like leave them out to make myself look better. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't the point of this book to make me look good. You know what I mean? It's to really show that like we are full of contradictions and the only thing we can do is make them better. Yeah, man. Okay. well, let's talk about the investigation, right? You have these multiple parts throughout the book uh, talking about an investigation that happened to you because of your anti-fascist club. There's also the self-defense classes that you teach and things like that. And I'm wondering if you can just go into a little bit of detail about um an investigation that happened to you that is woven throughout the book. Yeah, it, it was hard. It was hard. I, I got a letter in the mail that just said, basically, we're investigating you for leading students into potentially dangerous situations. 
Um, and what that means is I went to the human human resources guy and he said, well, what if you're bringing students to um, to protest and like you're giving them knives? And I'm like, where did you get like, was that like a tip you got? Or like, what if you're bringing students to invest to protest and giving them knives? Like, you can't just make that stuff up about people. But they did. And that was their basis for the investigation. And so like, that's what it hinged upon is that I was I was taking students out and like, really getting them into the like these horrible situations. But um, the fact of the matter is that protesting is legal. And there's nothing <laughs> illegal about it and and my students are adults um and and so like they were really they were really concerned about the self-defense collective um because students were were going to it and they think we were trying to like arm them with some sort of i don't know i don't know what they were really thinking but they just didn't like the idea of self-defense um mm. they don't like the idea of protest apparently um, so all of that made them nervous and they thought eventually they would be liable for some horrible thing that was going to happen. Mm. So, uh, what are some misconceptions that the administration had about what it is that you and your students were actually doing? Uh, so they thought what a lot of, I think people might think, which is that we were dressing up in black block and going out and just like running into like Republican conventions and like fist fighting people. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what they were thinking. Um, and so like they, they heard the word anti-fascist and, and they ran with it. And so like, yeah, I mean, I, I get that because that's, that's what you see on the news a lot. Um, but as an institution of, of higher learning, I, I'd, I'd think that they would do some critical thinking and some questioning and some, you know, before they they uh, put me into this investigation, has there been any reaction from the the school involving the book or anything like that? Because it's basically like you're you're telling the story, and um, you know, as you said, you're not writing the book to make it look make yourself look good, but you're also not writing it to make them look good either. Do you know what I mean? It's a really right. conflict filled book, and I'm wondering if how how that's going down with you, like in your real life and career. Yeah, I mean, so far nothing, nothing yet. Um, I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement, so um, you know, there's no legal stuff that could happen really, unless you know someone tries to sue me personally or whatever. But um, I'm just, I'm just gonna take it as it comes, and and that's the story of what happened. And and like they never apologized for anything, even though it was, you know, I I still work there. <laughs> obviously their investigation didn't quite go the way they thought it was going to go. Um, there was no apology. There was no, and in fact, after, after, um, after George Floyd was killed by police, um, they went full, full anti-racist action. Like they started putting it in their official documents, like professors need to, teach anti-racist pedagogy uh we need to decolonize everything and like so they're kind of doubling down on their rhetoric um the same the same rhetoric that they punished me for <laughs> got it well um 
what are you like enjoying about about teaching these days? Like since the conclusion of the investigation, since the uh, you know the writing of the book, like what's uh, what's got you feeling joyful about teaching in your work these days? I love teaching. I love teach. Like I I imagine you love teaching too. Yeah, I do. Um, I always I always think like I could be a high school teacher. I I love high school students. Um, my students are just so weird and like interesting. And yeah. Like, like, and some, sometimes I'll come into class and I'll have a lesson plan, but then I'll just like be talking to the students and I'm like, let's just talk about stuff for a little bit. And like, you know, screw the lesson for now. I just want to know what's going on in your lives and like how things are going and like the things you're worried about. And um, I, I just love I love it. I just love teaching. I I love teaching writing. I love teaching students who are like, I can't write. That's my favorite kind of student who's like, I don't even want to be in this class. I can't write. The, those students for me are like, are the best. And they're always, like, they can like, always write. Is that like talking to yourself from like 25, 30 years ago? It is. It is. And even the students who like, I can tell visibly hate me. I'm like, that's me hating me. <laughs> this is perfect. It's like such a good union. Like, I get what you're doing. Like, I understand you, that you hate your teacher. I honor that. I like it. I encourage it. Talk your shit. Go ahead. Like, I, I get it. I'm not, I'm not mad at you. <laughs> Man, that is so, so awesome. I mean, Josh, I love this book. Uh, I'm so delighted that, uh, that we're able to to hang out and chat about it. Um, there's so many deeply moving and personal stories, uh, several of which had me like on the brink of crying. I'm not going to bring those up, um, <laughs> but but you know the ones that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so this book is is raw. It's deep. It's moving. You hold nothing back. You put yourself on blast repeatedly throughout the book, which is some of my favorite stuff. I love when authors and and singers. Uh, you know, shine the mirror on themselves, so to speak. Yeah. And you you do that uh, movingly and passionately throughout the book. And it really is vulnerable and open and honest and fantastic. And I'm just grateful to you for being so deep and so personal uh, throughout the book because it just makes it such a thrill to read. Um, where can people find you and this book? Do you want to promote anything? Like, where do you want people to direct their attention um, after, if they're, if they've gotten to the end of our interview here, absolutely head to PM press. It's all over PM press. Um, they, they will be highlighting events. They'll be highlighting everything. They have a million great books of other authors. If you don't want to read a memoir from an anti-fascist, um, they got a bunch of music books. They have a bunch of, uh, political books. They have poetry books. Um, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, PM's been really great to me. And um, yeah, they're they're just super supportive ever since they 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 got the manuscript. They've been been amazing. So I yeah, I really think uh, it's an amazing publisher. What's your plan for promoting? Like you're doing events and stuff like that that people could look out for? Yeah, I got events. I got a uh, an online event, uh, a Zoom event uh, with Firestorm Books in March. Um, and that's going to be a great conversation with a uh, former bank robber, Joe Loya, who wrote a memoir, uh, called, uh, the man who escaped his prison cell or something like that. Uh, but yeah, he's a, he's a great writer. And so we're just going to be in conversation talking, uh, over with the folks at Firestorm Books. 
um, and a bunch of events that PM Press will definitely list on their events page. Amazing. Well, Josh Fernandez, author of The Hands That Crafted the Bomb, The Making of a Lifelong Anti-Fascist. Uh, what a thrill, man. I love this book. So glad that we got connected and that I was able to uh, have this interview and this time with you. It means a lot. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me to, uh, to chat about the book. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.